I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 13. We are continuing in our sermon series on the book of Genesis. Looking at Genesis 13, the whole chapter, verses 1 to 18. Follow along with me as I read, beginning in verse uh, Genesis chapter 13, verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And he had journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. May God bless the reading of his word. At Bible study this week, uh, we looked at how the Bible is one book with one supreme author, God, one subject, Jesus Christ, and one story, God's plan to save the world through Jesus. And in our study of Genesis, we've We've seen the progression toward the fulfillment of God's plan. 
In Genesis 3, verse 15, God promised that an offspring of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And there have been times when it has felt as though we were on the cusp of that fulfillment, right? With Adam and Eve giving birth to a son and the line of Seth calling upon the name of the Lord and Noah finding favor in the eyes of the Lord and God establishing an everlasting covenant with humanity. Feels like we're almost there. But then there have been times when the fulfillment of this promise has seemed highly unlikely and quite out of reach with Cain's murder of his brother Abel and the events leading up to the flood and the drunkenness of Noah and humanity's rebellion at the Tower of Babel. But despite all of humanity's failures, God would be faithful to keep his promises to his people. Uh, And over the past couple of weeks, we've been looking at this truth displayed in the life of Abram. Uh, In Genesis chapter 12, the Lord said to Abram, I will make of you a great nation. I'll bless you and I'll make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Later, the Lord said to, to Abram, to your offspring, I will give this land. That is the land of the Canaanites. But then Abram leaves the land of promise and he goes to the land of Egypt. He offers his wife to Pharaoh in exchange for wealth and possessions. And he brings a curse upon the nations rather than a blessing. But despite all that, Genesis 13 verse 1 says that Abram went up from Egypt. He and his wife and all that he had and Lot went with him into the Negev. Abram doesn't deserve to have his wife back and he doesn't deserve the wealth that he receives from the hand of Pharaoh, yet God is gracious towards Abram. God gives Abram what he does not deserve in order that God's plan to save the world through Jesus might be kept alive. And so in these next Two chapters, Genesis 13 and 14, we see stories of faithfulness on the part of Abram that are going to culminate in Genesis 15, verse 6, where it says that Abram believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And what we're going to see is that in light of Abram's failure to trust in God, we see him walk by faith in God's promises. And how this is really good news for each one of us. Uh, Look there at verse two. It says, now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. Uh, The Hebrew word here uh, to describe, used here to describe how uh, Abram was rich is kavad, which means heavy. And it's the same Hebrew word used actually in, in Genesis chapter 12, verse 10, to describe how the famine of the land was severe. All right, so just as the famine of the land was heavy, so also Abram is heavy in livestock and silver and gold. Now it'd be is easy, right, for Abram to trust in material wealth and possessions rather than trust in his God. 
After all, the wealth that Abram is described as having here, would it be unheard of for a wandering shepherd like Abram? It would have been easy for Abram to sit back and enjoy the good life rather than seek the kingdom of God. It's a temptation that we are faced with as well. Uh, when Helena and I went to uh, Ireland several years ago, we saw many beautiful cathedrals. And they were large structures with beautiful stained glass. Uh, some of them took many years and a lot of money to build, which reflects what was central for people in those days. And that is the worship of God, right? Life revolved around Christianity. The cathedral was the highest building in town, and it was oftentimes in the center of town. People were baptized there and worshiped there and confessed their sins there and married there and were buried there. Worship of God in the cathedral was the focus of their lives. But when you look around at the highest buildings in many cities today, they are no longer churches, are they? But banks and corporations and condominiums. Many churches today are being turned into stores and houses. I remember watching a a CBC program several years ago uh, where this couple had purchased an old church building and had renovated it into a home. And, And over the course of the renovations, they had multiple people stop by and and asked to see the renovated church. It, the, the church had meant something to them. Either they had been baptized there or they were married there or they, were, they buried loved ones there. They wanted to see the renovations and the couple was, was happy to share their home with them. But this kind of thing reflects that there's been a, a shift in our society and what we deem as most important in fact, you can, you can tell where a culture is at by their architecture. It's quite fascinating. But rather than the, the worship of God, materialism has become central for people. Rather than seeking the kingdom of God, we seek the good life that we think we can attain through material wealth and possessions. So that's the, the danger before us. It's also the danger before Abram. But notice how Abram responds in verses 3 to 4. It says that he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. So back in Genesis chapter 12, Abram built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him, and he called upon the name of the Lord there. Now, Now, we didn't look at it last week, but... But this place is situated between Bethel, which means house of God, and Ai, which means ruin or destruction. Right? So it, in a way, it's like Abram is at this fork in the road where he can either go towards the city of God or towards the city of destruction. It's a very, the, the imagery is real. And notice what Abram does in the rest of verse four. It says that Abram, called upon the name of the Lord. And so what we're seeing here is that Abram is returning to the place where he first built an altar to the Lord and where he first called upon the name of the Lord. And rather than trust 
in his great wealth and possessions, which will ultimately lead to ruin and destruction. Abram puts his trust in the Lord who has provided such things for him, who has provided all of his great wealth and possessions. So we see it. This is a, this is a different Abram than what we saw back in Genesis chapter 12. But then look at verse 5. It says, And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. So we see that Abram is not the only one with great wealth and possessions, is he? In fact, it would seem as though God's promise to Abram that he will be a blessing and that all the families of the earth shall be blessed through him is actually being fulfilled in the life of Lot. God is fulfilling these promises in Lot, who is experiencing the overflow of God's blessing of Abram. However, this is causing a a conflict between Abram and and Lot. Look at verse 7. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now, back, back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, when the Lord called Abram, he said to him, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So he was supposed to leave his country, he was supposed to leave his kindred, and he was supposed to leave his father's house. Now, what's interesting about that is that Abram has done that with all of his family relations except for one, Lot. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 5, Abram sets out for the land that God would show him with Sarai, his wife, and with Lot, his brother's son. And ever since then, Lot has been following Abram around wherever he's gone. And so what I want to suggest is that this strife, which will ultimately lead to the separation of Abram and Lot, is actually a good thing. Because it's going to allow God to work entirely with Abram and with Abram's offspring. After all, it would be Abram through which the line of promise would come, not Lot. Ultimately, God is going to use this circumstance in Abram's life, not not as a curse, not to curse Abram, but to bless Abram. Now, now I want to be clear here. This this isn't saying that that we should give up on each other on the first sign of conflict. (laughs) That's that's not what is happening here. Abram and Lot, they're not giving up on each other. Rather, it's their commitment to each other that is causing them to part ways. What do I mean by that? Well, it's the same thing that we see in in Acts chapter 15. I don't know if you remember from when we looked at the book of Acts, but in Acts chapter 15, immediately after the Jerusalem Council became united on these theological and ethical issues, there were these two leaders in the church, Barnabas, the son of encouragement, and the apostle Paul who could not agree on whether or not to take John Mark with them on their missionary journey. So what did they do? They part ways for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They didn't want it to be a stumbling block to those to whom they were ministering. 
And do you know what God does? He actually uses their separation to spread the gospel to more places because now they were going in two different groups instead of one, which meant that more places would hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so sometimes, not always, but sometimes, after we've done all we can do in a relationship, we may have to agree to disagree and simply say, you know, you go your way, I'll go mine. And it's not because we're giving up on each other, but it's rather because we're committed to each other. We're, we're eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, Ephesians 4 verse 3 says. And we can do that even in separation. All right, so that's, but, but it's, it's one hindrance that is facing the promises of God. What, what's going to happen with this situation? All right, but it's not the only hindrance. It's not the only hindrance. Look at verse 7. It ominously concludes, at that time, the Canaanites and the Parasites were dwelling in the land. Right now, just just like back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 6, where we read that at that time, Canaanites were in the land. Guess what? They're still in the land. We find that the land God promised to give to Abram's offspring is occupied by the offspring of the serpent, the Canaanites. And actually, it's included one more group of people, the parasites. We'll look at these more as we move our way through Genesis. But but how does Abram handle this situation? What does he do? Well, look at verse 8. Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Now, that's an interesting word, kinsmen. When was the last time that we saw strife between kinsmen? Well, Cain and Abel, right? In Genesis chapter 4, Cain killed his brother Abel out of jealousy. But here's a situation where strife is brewing between kinsmen. And unlike Cain, Abram does see himself as his brother's keeper. After all, he's taking care of his brother's son. And rather than give in to sin which is most certainly crouching at the door here. Abram gives Lot this choice. Look at verse 9. Abram says to Lot, Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Now, there are some who see this as an act of faithlessness on Abram's part. Right? Because as the senior partner in the relationship, Abram had the right to choose first the portion of the land he wanted. I, ideally, the, the land that God had promised to him, right? And if he knows that the way to life is this way and that the way to destruction is this way, then why even give Lot the choice? Why even allow Lot the opportunity to choose the land of promise? You can imagine the Israelites hearing this story for the first time and saying to each other, can you believe that Abraham almost gave up the promised land to Lot? And you know who comes from from the line of Lot? The Moabites and the Ammonites. We're also going to see. Can you imagine the Moabites and the Ammonites inheriting the promised land? That's so why some see this as a, an act of faithlessness on, 
on Abram's part. But I, I actually think this is an act of faith on, on Abram's part. I think this is a contrast between what we've just seen in Genesis chapter 12, right? By letting Lot choose first, Abram is showing that he is trusting in God to fulfill his promise rather than trying to grab it for himself, which is exactly what we saw him do in Egypt, right? So, so just, like, just like Abram will offer up the promised son in Genesis chapter 22, here it's like he's offering up the promised land as an act of faith in the Lord. And there's a, there's a point of application here for us. Sometimes, again, not always, but sometimes, we're going to have to give up our rights. There, there are times when it is right to insist upon our rights, but there are times when we are going to have to give up our rights. And again, we see this in the book of Acts. There, there were times when the apostle Paul took the lashes and the beatings and the stoning. And then there were times when Paul said, no, I'm actually a Roman citizen and, and you have no authority to be doing to me what you're doing. But for Paul, the difference was whether defending his rights would further the advance of the gospel of Jesus. And that's why in, in Acts 21, for example, par, Paul participates in a Jewish custom before he's arrested and sent on his way to Rome. Right? He is free in Christ to not, not participate in this Jewish custom. But he gives up his right. He gives up his freedom in Christ in order to win his fellow Jews to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the question is, are we willing to give up our rights, trusting that God will take care of us? Or do we always insist on our rights? Husbands and wives, regardless of whose fault it is, I'm sure we're more involved than we think we are. Are we willing to give up our rights and take the first step toward reconciliation in the relationship? Or do we always let wait for the other person to make the first move? Are we willing to sometimes give up our rights uh, this is a conversation we often have with our kids. Uh, if someone comes over to our house, they get the first pick on toys and games and things like that because their guests are home. All right, our kids say. But when we go over to someone else's house, then we get to choose first then, right? No, they get to decide. Why? Because we're guests in their home. And this has been a struggle at times for our kids because they, they want to exercise their rights. They want to have the opportunity to choose first. And isn't that just human nature? Don't we all want to insist on our rights? Don't we all want to do what we want and not be inconvenienced by deferring to someone else? I mean, this is essentially what we saw with Eve in the Garden of Eden, right? 
She took up the fruit because why? She liked the idea of being able to define good and evil for herself. But here we see Abram was willing to give up his right to choose first. And he has Lot choose first, trusting in the Lord to provide everything that he had promised. And ultimately, Abram is pointing forward to his future offspring, Jesus Christ, who looked not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Philippians 2, verses 4 to 8. Abram knows by now <laughs> that God will keep his promises. Look then at verse 10. Law lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord. Right, so this is a reference to the Garden of Eden. And it sounds really good, right? Until you keep going. Like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. Right, so just like the, the great river flowed out of Eden to, to water the garden, so also the Nile River was, was the life of Egypt. And so... Lot's looking at the land and he's like, this is sounding a lot like the Garden of Eden. He saw the well-watered land and he's immediately thinking paradise. But then Moses adds this ominous parenthetical note. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, why would Moses say that? Oh, because verses 11 to 13 say, so Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east, thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So he's, he's drawing a connection here to what we're going to see later in Genesis chapter 19. In fact, by referencing Sodom and Gomorrah, Moses is assuming that we're already aware of what's about to happen in Genesis chapter 19, where God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Moses wants us to see that Lot is making a bad choice. He's leaving the land of Canaan. He's leaving the land of promise, and he's settling in the land that will soon come to ruin. Remember, in Genesis, whenever someone moved eastward or, or they settled in the east, they're typically leaving the presence of the Lord and they're moving out from the blessing of God. We saw this with Cain in Genesis chapter 4. After Cain killed his brother Abel, God graciously put a, a mark of protection on Cain, lest anyone should kill him. What does Cain do? It says that Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. He's like, no, I can take care of it myself. I want to I make my own security, my own protection. And he settles in the east. And so we see the same thing happening here. Lot, Lot is not looking with the eyes of faith. He's, he's, not, he's not recalling the promise of God that through Abram all the families of the earth shall be blessed and that the Lord has given Abram this land. 
right? He's, he's not thinking to himself that, hey, maybe I should stay close to Abram so that I can receive the residual blessing that's going to come from God blessing Abram. No, just like Eve in the Garden of Eden saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise so that she took of its fruit and ate. So also Lot saw that the land was good, that it was desired to make one prosperous so that he separated from Abram and settled in the land. Right, so like Lot, he's he's looking with human eyes at this false garden of Eden, this city of man that's masquerading as the city of God. And he's throwing himself into the city of man because that's where he thinks he's going to find wealth and security. Which is exactly how Abram responded in Genesis chapter 12. You'd think that he'd, he'd recall Abram's failure and go, I don't want to do that. I already know how that turned out. No, but just like Cain moved east and built a city, and just like humanity after the flood moved east and they built a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, so also Lot moves east to a wicked city. And the thing about all of these cities is that they all end up in destruction. That's not a coincidence. Lot might think that the good life resides in Sodom, but there's coming a day when that well-watered land is going to become a pile of ash. And so there's a caution here for us to not throw ourselves into that which we think looks desirable for obtaining wealth and security. We must not settle in the city of man that tells us that uh, this job or this income, or this spouse, or these possessions, is the path to the good life. No. The path to the good life is found in the worship of the one true God. That's that's the constant theme throughout this entire chapter. But it's a constant battle for the people of God, isn't it? It's why Jesus said in Matthew 6.24, No one can serve two masters. For either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And so we must understand that there is a war going on for our souls that is manifesting itself in our lives in our response towards material prosperity. Right? Are our affections toward the things of earth or are our affections toward the things of heaven? Are we seeking the kingdom of God or are we seeking material wealth and possessions? How, how we respond to these questions will reveal where our heart is. And so where is our heart at? Let me see where, where Abram's heart is at. Look at verse 14. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes. Because rather than than Abram doing the seeing, the Lord is doing the seeing on behalf of, of Abram. Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, westward, for all the land that I will give to you 
all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if you can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. Right, so in contrast to Lot, who looked with the eyes of the flesh and who settled outside the promised land, Abram looks with the eyes of faith, and he settles in the land of Canaan, inside the promised land. And it's here where the Lord reiterates his promises of land and offspring to Abram. But, but the Lord isn't simply just renewing his promises. He's actually expanding on his promises. In reference to land, the Lord tells Abram to look all around in every direction as far as the eye can see, and that's, that's your land. Right? So that's going to be Abram's land. And it's going to belong to Abram and to his offspring forever. Right? So that's, that's a little bit more expanded than what we've just seen. And then in reference to offspring, the Lord says that Abram's descendants will be incalculable, like, like the, the dust of the earth. Later, the Lord will refer to Abram's offspring as the, the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky. In other words, Abram's offspring will be innumerable. And look at how Abram responds to God's promises in verse 18. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. All right, so you see how, how Genesis 12 and Genesis, and Genesis 13, they're kind of like, they're bookended at the beginning and at the end with worship. As as Abram builds an altar to the Lord. And this act of worship, it reveals how far Abram has come in his walk with God since his, his failure in Egypt. He is once again walking by faith in the promises of God. Now, remember, at this point, Abram doesn't own any land in Canaan, and he doesn't have any offspring. So, so once again, God's promises demand Abram to take God at his word, despite all the evidence to the contrary. And, and it's just, it's an example of what faith is like. This is what a life of faith looks like. Faith is putting our trust in Jesus with the expectation that we will one day live forever with him. Right? But faith doesn't just end there. It's not like we graduate from faith and then start living by sight. No, all of life is a life of faith. That all of life is trusting that God is going to be true to his promises and that he will take care of us despite all the evidence to the contrary. Because we're going to be faced with, with evidence that's going to suggest contrary. And, and a life of faith is trusting that God is going to be true to his promises each and every day. First uh, Peter 1, verses 8 to 9 says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So is this verse true of us? Can we say that though we have not seen Jesus, we love him? And if this is not true of you, then I would encourage you to put your trust in Jesus Christ today. He is your only hope in life and death. He came to this world to suffer 
but to die, to be raised back to life so that we might inherit a garden better than Eden. You, you can put your trust in this God. But the reality is, is that each one of us is faced with a fork in the road, aren't we? <laughs> will I turn toward the city of God or will I turn toward the city of destruction? There, there is no in-between. When, when we die or when Christ comes again, we will either be found in the city of God or in the city of destruction. And what makes the difference, church, and I want to be very clear here, what makes the difference is whether or not we have put our trust in Jesus Christ. That is the defining factor. Have we put our trust in Jesus Christ? Have you done that? All right, now maybe you're discouraged that you aren't living the life of faith you want to live. You know, maybe you're struggling with doubts. Maybe you're still struggling with taking God at his word. You know, maybe you're still struggling with, with the materialism of this world that still has a hold on your life. Do not be discouraged. Do not be discouraged because God will not lose a single one of his children. All right? If you have put your trust in Jesus Christ, God has saved you by his grace. He has done the work of separating you from the world. He is working his gift of faith into your life. And it's not something that you can do. It's something that, that Jesus has earned for you. And he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Philippians 1 verse 6 says. Right, there, there is nothing we can be more certain of in this life than the next. And, and thus, our rightful response to God for his inexpressible gift is worship. It's worship. This, this is what a life of faith culminates in. It culminates in worship. Like, like Abram, we will all wrestle with, with trusting and distrusting God and his promises. I mean, we still live in a Genesis 3 world. That is just the reality. But may we all like Abram, come humbly before the Lord our King and ascribe to him all glory and honor and praise him and thank him for all that he has done. For the Lord is good and his steadfast love endures forever. May our response to this text be one of worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word. You know the trials and the temptations we are facing. And we just ask that you would give us wisdom concerning these. That in our circumstances, we might hold fast to your word. We give you thanks for Jesus who has made known to us the path of life. More than that, who is the way and the truth and the life. In Christ, we can have confidence and peace that you will not lose any of those for whom Christ died. And that there is reserved for all those who put their trust in Jesus Christ 
by faith, eternal blessedness beyond all comparison. I mean, those who do not know this peace and comfort know it today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.